This morning's reading can be found on page 980 of the Church Bibles. Matthew chapter 13. That's page 980 and it's Matthew chapter 13 starting at verse 44 to 46. The parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such ways hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Do please sit down. Well, good morning. Happy New Year to those of you who I've not said that to just yet. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is James, and I'll do that. New Year's is an opportunity for us to take stock, to look back at where you've been heading this past year, and to readjust course. It's a bit like a pit stop. Uh, in a 100-lap endurance race. It's an opportunity to check that you're fueled up and that you're running optimally for the next lap. That's basically why some come up with resolutions, right? Uh, You reflect on how the last year has been for you and you plan to change those things which aren't as helpful as they could have been. Uh, And seven days in, I'm sure we can all attest to how well or how terribly that is going for us so far. (laughs) But for Christians, this is an especially good practice, not because we turn going to the gym or cutting out alcohol into moral duties, but because we expect our wandering hearts to lead us away from Jesus in the things we've spent our past year thinking about, in the things that we've spent our past year doing or watching or reading or listening to. And as you reflect, how much of that stuff, how much of this last year has been centred on the person and works of Jesus, his concerns, his priorities? How much of the last year has been marked by Christ-likeness? The beginning of each year is a chance for us to prayerfully let our old selves die and to be reborn with renewed focus on Jesus so that we would know and love him more when he returns. And for those of you who are worried about a spoiler warning, um, who've been with us up to whatever it is, sort of the early parts of Matthew chapter 5, and feel that jumping almost 10 chapters might ruin the narrative for you, um, the reason that we're here, just for this couple of verses today, is because Jesus, in verse 44, offers us a life-orienting truth. A, a faith-orienting truth, which may just help us to readjust and refuel for 2024. 
And that truth is that God wants us to have the greatest joy that we could possibly imagine. God wants us to have the greatest joy that we could possibly imagine. That is Jesus' bold claim in our first parable. Listen again. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. In verse 44, Jesus tells us that the kingdom of heaven is the source of greatest joy. It's the greatest, it's the source of greatest joy that any of us here can have. And I think this means for us four things which we'll be looking at this morning. It means first that the gospel is about joy. Second, that the source of this joy is the kingdom of heaven. Third, that this joy is the, in the kingdom will motivate us to costly sacrifice. And fourth, that it is in responding to the kingdom of heaven in joyful sacrifice that we will be satisfied. We're going to look at each of these in turn. And the first is the gospel is about joy. This is a really important point we can overlook and is so key to going into the next year. Have a look again at verse 44. When the man found the treasure, he hid it again, and then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought the field. This means that the Christian gospel is about joy. It's about being happy. The world sees it as a, as a harsh set of rules and instructions, a sad, sorry moping around an aging story which tries to justify our inward sense that there is morality and, and our longing for justice and, and trying to explain the world's unexplainable evils and this sense of hope for the future. And the suffering we see and experience, the year we've had, may well be so overwhelming that our day-to-day life feels less like joy and more like survival. But this verse tells us that a core aspect of Jesus' gospel is being given divine joy. That means a faithful, a healthy Christianity will offer tangible, real, lasting joy. To those who feel lost and hopeless, joy. To those who are sad, and alone. Joy. And to those who feel that they have been through everything that brings joy in this world and have found it wanting and are lacking, here is Jesus' promise that there is joy for all of us. And we will hear this joy is not frivolous, it is not childish, it's not wishful thinking, but it's also not optional. It is the real result of God's presence and work among his people. When the man found the treasure hidden in the field, in his joy, he went off. Which leads us to our second point. The source of this joy is the kingdom of heaven. Read it again. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, that is the kingdom of heaven, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all that he had and bought a field. We could imagine perhaps expanding. I don't know if any of you have played with um, 
AI software, um, one of the things that I'm finding particularly interesting and, and magic, basically, it's not technology, it's magic, um, is how you can plug a picture, so let's say your best family Christmas photo, into a bit of AI software and kind of tell it to expand the edges of this photo and just invent just new stuff. I know, it's, it's pretty bonkers. Um, and so you can, you know, you can take the top of it, oh, I want to pretend that my family Christmas gathering was on a mountain or at, at the foot of a mountain, so you just go, put mountains above me, and then it just kind of creates a mountain scene that f- seems completely plausible. And you go, actually, I really don't like my mother-in-law, so can I just, um, <laughs> can I just remove her, please? And, and they'll just kind of, it'll just generate what should be behind her. And you go, and I'd really like to be wearing a cape. And so you just sort of circle that bit, and then it's, and a cape magic. So if we were to do that with this scene, you can sort of imagine that there's this guy who's for some reason searching in a field, he's just digging up in a field, and then he finds a treasure. Before treasure, no joy. After treasure, joy. And what does Jesus tell us this treasure is? He tells us it's the kingdom of heaven. Upon finding the kingdom of heaven, the man went off joyfully. Which means that when we know the outrageous love that God has for us, which brought him into the world in his son and to the cross as a sacrifice in our place, we will rejoice. That's not a command. It's it's a consequence. The gospel is a gospel of joy. And this is rooted not in our own effort to be glad or our achievements or our faithfulness or fitness, not in our singing or our preaching or, or the decorations that we had up over Christmas or, or even how good morally we feel this week has gone. It is a joy in the kingdom of heaven. Which begs the question, what is the kingdom of heaven? It feels like a fairly ambiguous phrase that Jesus doesn't really unpack for us, obviously. Well, in chapter 13... Jesus compares the kingdom for other times to a farmer who, having sown a good crop, is patient with the weeds that come in so that he wouldn't lose any of his wheat before the harvest. He describes it as a mustard seed or some yeast, something unbelievably small with explosive power, and as a net which catches fish, some for keeping and others for destruction. Now, while those last three, the mustard seed, the yeast, and the net, could be understood individually as characteristics of the kingdom, perhaps the evangelistic and transformative responsibilities of of the citizens of, of God the King, the parable commonly referred to as about the weeds, that first one about the farmer, gives us a bit more direction. Jesus tells us that the farmer is the son of man. That is God's chosen king himself. The kingdom in view in this chapter is the reign of God, his rule and authority over all things. And Jesus describes this rule as gracious, patient, powerful, transformative, salvific, concerned with the uh, the saving of others, and just. This is what the disciples would have had in mind as uh, kind of buzzing around their heads as they heard this parable we're focusing on today. The kingdom of God, God's rule, this sovereign king, is gracious and patient and powerful and concerned with transforming people and saving people and bringing justice. Which makes sense of our second parable. 
verses 45 and 46, when the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. I don't know about you, um, I've had a bit of a, a humiliating this week, um, just in terms of how blasé I am with some of the bits of the Bible that I read. Um, at first, this sounds like a repeat of our first parable. But looking again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. It's not the pearls. I, I take umbrage with the um, uh, people that put the little phrases that describe our, our passages. The parable of the pearl of great price is what I've got written in my Bible, but it's not a parable of a pearl, it's a parable of a merchant. Like the patient farmer king before, Jesus describes the kingdom as a person who acts in a particular situation. The kingdom isn't the pearls themselves, like the treasure in verse 44, but the merchant, the person who desires a treasure and gives up what he has so he can get it. This is really important because in verse 44, I imagine as you read that, whether, whether you, you feel like you know your Bibles really, really well or this is the first time you've opened one, you're probably assuming, okay, well, if I've been, I'm being told the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man co- found and, uh, and covered up and then he went off and he sells everything he has in his joy. Okay, if I'm in this verse, I'm probably the man. I'm probably not a field and I'm probably not a treasure and I'm probably not just the abstract concept of joy. I'm probably the man. If we were to apply that same logic to verses 45 and 46 and say, I'm probably the man, then the merchant becomes an example of of what we should do, an example of how we should behave. So the moral might be, we've got to look for pearls, whatever these pearls are, and when we find one of great value, like the man who found the treasure hidden in the field, we've got to sell everything we've got and and then we'll have the pearl. And that then leads us down a road of asking, what's the pearl and and how do we then sell everything we've got once we've found the thing of great value? But in the context of of chapter 13, we see that the the merchant isn't us, but is this king-like figure, this farmer king from before. Doesn't this parable sound like the one who humbled himself to become a servant appointed for death, so that he could obtain for himself the people he loved. Verses 45 and 46 go from being a parable about how we might go and pursue something that is good and lovely and and, and great and, and suffer costlily for it, as a repeat of verse 44, and becomes a microcosm of the gospel. The merchant who longed for that which was valuable to him. And so bore the cost of obtaining it. If that is the case, we see here what God is like, what his kingly rule is like. He longs for treasures. He longs for that which he he deems valuable. And when he finds one, he sacrificially bears the cost of owning it. This is the gospel in two verses, in a parable. The gospel we've heard in so many other places, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Here in the story of the merchant is the gospel. And so when Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven to a man who gives up what he has so he could obtain the treasure he longs for, Jesus is describing the sacrificial grace and love characteristic of God's reign in Jesus Christ. Jesus' love for us, which took him to the cross. This means that as we hear about the one who loves us so much, he gave up all so we could have everything, we will be unable to do anything but love him. Let me say that again, because that's a classically long sentence. As we hear about the one who loves us so much that he gave up everything so we could have everything, we will be unable to do anything else but love him. And that love will delight us. It will give us a joy. A joy rooted in the beauty and the worth and the value and the love and the care of Jesus Christ for us. You see, it's a dangerous thing to say that the gospel is a gospel of joy if it's not rooted in what God has revealed to be joy bringing in his word. A gospel which is not rooted in in God's revelation of himself and the way the universe works would lead us to go and find pleasure wherever we can. And though God has given us much to enjoy in this world, we know our hearts. We know that they enjoy what is not good for us. And we also know that what is good for us eventually becomes unsatisfying. So an aimless, contextless search for pleasure will lead us to rewrite the gospel. To make it fit what we feel. To fit what we want. That may please for a time, but it will not last. And it most certainly will not save. I know that for many here, all this talk of joy might actually sound like bad news. That it sounds as though I'm saying that Christians must be annoyingly happy all the time. And if you're anything like me, that idea is so far from your experience of the Christian faith that I must either be talking nonsense or claiming that you're not a Christian. That you need some deeper experience to properly qualify. Well, take comfort, I'm not saying any of that. Rather, I am saying that this joy is a settled joy. It is a joy that rightly sees the beauty and the value and the delight and and the glory of Jesus and may well be ecstatic and, and if that's your temperament and that's your circumstance and context. But at its core, it is a settled joy. It is the joy which Ecclesiastes calls heart gladness. I don't have that, I'm sorry. Um, Here's the verse from chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. 
The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. That's hard to really wrap your heads around that, especially when you can't see it and I'm distracting you with a different verse. I think what that's saying is is that when we are in the presence of, of deep suffering, deep sadness, we may more fully experience and know the foundational, settled joy that will, will not shake us. When we are in, in uh, as he says here, in, in uh, the house of mirth, when we're full of pleasure and joy and delight in a, in a, a fairly sort of visceral sense, that can actually distract us from the fact that there's nothing underpinning that. The joy that we have in view here is a settled gladness of heart, an unshakable security and joy in the salvation of the Lord, which can withstand the sufferings of this world. A joy which genuinely delights in a good meal and which also holds us through the worst day we'll ever have. A joy that fills our hearts, though tears pour down your face as you experience the worst suffering you've ever been through. A joy that holds you on the solid rock of Jesus' faithfulness and trustworthiness amidst whatever you're enduring. This is the joy on offer in the gospel. It is the joy of knowing the penalty of our sins does... I'm going to repeat that because I've got that phrase slightly wrong. The reason I think I can say that this is the sort of joy that Jesus is pointing us to, this settled, rock-solid joy that may have jubilant heights, but will also endure in a settled and secure way through deep grief and suffering and persecution and pain. It's because that seems to be the sort of joy that is present at the heart of the gospel story. The gospel story is the story of knowing that The penalty of our natural heart state, our wandering from the Lord, our desire to to be apart from God and to do things our own way, deserves death. And none of us will chuckle at that. That does not bring joy. What brings joy is that in the midst of that horrifying reality, that horrifying verdict, God has moved to redeem us. That the penalty our sin deserves has been paid for. That our creator, the lovely, holy one, has endured the cost of our sin so we could be free to enjoy relationship with him. And so at the heart of the gospel is this paradoxical joy in the face of this horrifyingly awful reality that we are more broken than we can comprehend. This is we double down on that, as we get to grips with the reality of that, that salvation becomes even more beautiful. But the beauty of salvation does not undo the sting of the horror of sin. It fixes the consequences and, and gives us hope that one day the, the consequences of sin, the, the, the reality of sin, will be gone from this world and from our hearts. But right at the heart of the gospel is this paradoxical joy in the midst of of the, of, the, of the horror, of the suffering, of the evil that's, that lies within. Which is why I think we can say that the joy that is on offer here 
in the gospel works the same way. It is a joy that isn't just bombastic and jubilant and, and, and full of parties, and, but it is a joy that holds us. When we, we don't feel that we could ever feel happy again. Because we know that Jesus is our saviour. And that there is hope to come. This joy is not fleeting. It will not disappear on you. No matter how sad, how worn out, how spent you feel. How far you fear you've fallen. It is a joy which bubbles up. Whenever we dwell on Jesus' efforts for us at the cross, this leads us to our third point. And that's our second point. That's Ecclesiastes. Our third point. Joy in the kingdom, this joy in Jesus' work on the cross for us, his, his rule and reign as graciously sacrificial and loving, will motivate us to costly sacrifice. Verse 44 again, you can see it there. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. When does the man, what does the man do when he finds the treasure? You might say he makes a prudent business decision. Um, he makes a costly sacrifice so he could obtain the treasure. This joy in Jesus' sacrificial grace and love, which enables us to endure suffering, will lead us to be willing to suffer, to know it more. So he finds the treasure hidden in the field, and then he covers it up again so he can go and buy it. In one sense, he already owned, he's, he's obtained it, it's there. But instead, he, he goes and sells everything he has so that he could own the field and therefore own the treasure. This joy in Jesus' sacrificial grace and love, which enables us to endure suffering will lead us to be willing to suffer to know it more. Or to put it another way, knowing the truths of the gospel will delight us to, will, will delight us, sorry, I've got that phrased wrong. I need to write shorter sentences. Uh, knowing that the truths of the gospel will delight us, will empower us in the battle against sin. However costly and painful that might be this year. Knowing that following Jesus brings us joy, will give us the capacity and the scope and the power and the ability, by God's grace, through his spirit, to seek to become more like Jesus, however costly that might be for us. How have you drifted from the Lord in the past year? Where have you sought greatest joy and satisfaction? Was it in him? The man in the story gives up everything he has his property, his possessions. You see, this is a radical joy. This is an active joy which will enable us to be bold for Christ in our own hearts. This joy will empower us to give up our money and our time, uh, the things that we, we love the most, the things we think give us the greatest delight and joy. Our career prospects, our retirement, our spare time, our entertainment, 
All of these things so that we could be more faithful to him. We could follow him. This is a joy which fuels our fight against brokenness in our hearts. And this joy which enables us to endure the suffering we go through and which leads us to suffer to know more. Sorry, to suffer more to know it. It's another overly long sentence, forgive me. This joy which enables us to endure the suffering we go through and which leads us to suffer more to know it will also move us towards others in their deepest pain. If we know the gospel brings us joy, if we know the gospel is is life-giving and joy-bringing to us, and we know that that joy will delight us in in this settled and perhaps tearful way to, to take the scalpel to our sin, because we know that Christ and the joy that he brings by being in relationship with us will hold us in the midst of that pain, then we have the resources too to go out and meet others in their pain. This is what enables Christian service of others, Christian service of of the most vulnerable and hurting. You see, this is a joy which moves towards people's need rather than being so fragile that it needs to cocoon itself from the rest of the world. It is a joy in Jesus' self-giving love for us, which enables us to give ourselves to keep the lonely company, to feed the starving, to mourn with the grieving, to care for the orphan and widow, to champion the rights of those being maligned, to defend the undefended, to stand against the atrocities across our society and our world. It is a joy that brings Jesus settled, sacrificial gladness into the lives of the lost and the hurting and the mistreated. And finally, it is in responding to the sacrificial grace and love of Jesus in joyful sacrifice that we will be satisfied. The Bible is full of these paradoxically repeated claims of finding fullness at our own limits, at the end of ourselves. As I said before, you, know, you could imagine you know, the uh, what, what doesn't the man do in the parable? If, if I'd have written it this way, if I'd have written it, it would have been sneak back to the field one night with a cart, chuck the treasure on, and scarper with his possessions. That's not becoming of Jesus' teaching. I'm, 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 sure, I'm clear. I understand that, but. He'd be rich, he'd be happy, he'd have treasure, he'd be living the dream. But that's not how Jesus wrote the story. The mad thing about biblical joy, about this joy, is it will take us beyond ourselves, beyond our capabilities and our skills. It'll, give, it'll call us to give up more than we feel we can and to spend more of ourselves in the service of others than we feel we have to give. And so in that we have two options. We try to find that capacity which is beyond ourselves, in ourselves, which is madness. But a madness I'm sure we all 
buy into in so many ways. No, this, this joy will demand that we, we give more than we have, depending entirely upon the God who gives and sustains, who fills hearts with joy. You see, this joy will take us from delighting in God's gift of salvation to delighting in God's provision of grace in hard circumstances. This joy in Jesus will lead us to deeper joy in Jesus because we will become more in need of him. And so he will meet that need over and over again. The deep-rooted joy on offer in the gospel, grounded in Jesus Christ, will never run dry. It is the joy that will ultimately satisfy and sustain us this year for our lives and for eternity beyond. When Mike asked me to preach this Sunday sermon, he told me to choose something that, God willing, should mark the focus and the heading of my future ministry. I pray that God would set forth personally and in my ministry his truth and beauty as the one who loves us so much he sent his son to die so that we might know him And in relationship with him, find fullest joy and purpose. Would you hold me to that? Will you also let the Lord delight you with himself? Will you let him fuel you with joy to fight the darkness in your heart, in the world around you, by his spirit? Will you depend upon him this year? To help you to rejoice in the truly astounding, joy-bringing reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Take a moment to reflect and then I'll pray. Father, we long to be a people who, who love you aright whose hearts are turned towards you correctly, who in some small and feeble measure feel the rightness and the fullness of how we should feel towards you. Father, would you help us today to delight in who you are, to know and rejoice in our Saviour King. Father, would this joy so fill us that we might feel emboldened and enabled to fight against that sin in our hearts which feels like it it is King over us. Would you give us such a sense of your the, the joy of your gospel that the cost of fighting that sin would feel as nothing. Would you too, Grandfather, that you would move us out in this joy, this this joy to, to love and serve those that we know and who only you know around us and around the world who are in need who are in need of your love and care. Father, we pray that we would never 
um, move from, from this place of joy that, that feeds and sustains and keeps us going. We pray that you would correct us where we seek to do things in our own strength. That by your grace and mercy we would delight in you and in our delighting depend upon you more. And in our depending, so find delight in you again. For your glory that Jesus would be seen to be all powerful and all lovely and all satisfying. Amen.